Good morning. I'm Randy Buckwalter, one of the elders serving you here at Redeemer, and I have the honor of sharing the scripture with you that Ross will be using as a sermon text this morning. And this week, we will continue our series in Philippians, and today the focus will be on chapter 2, verses 12 through 30. As is our tradition, and if you are able, we'd ask that you rise in honor of the reading of God's word. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 30. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that surely I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Thanks be to God for his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. You may be seated. I haven't met you yet. My name is Ross. Is this thing on, Bob? Am I muted? I'm on. You guys hear me good? Oh, okay. If I haven't met you yet, I'm Ross, the assistant pastor here, and we are continuing our journey through Paul's letter to the Philippian church and by association to us as well. And we've seen it's a letter of surprising joy for Paul. And we'll get to witness another major source of his joy in our passage this morning. So let's pray and ask God to help us as we consider his word. God, in your kindness and sovereignty, you've ordained for a broken jar of clay like me to carry the priceless and precious words of your truth to your people this morning, to be built up in our faith. Lord, would you give us faith to believe that these words are true and are the best thing for us? And would you give us humility to listen and allow them to speak into all the areas of our lives? And would you lead us to the cross again this morning to be struck by your love and to the empty tomb to be filled with hope? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Growing up, my favorite movie by far was Remember the Titans. I first saw it in the theaters with my seventh grade football team, and I was immediately hooked and saw it dozens of times in the years following. 
and could probably quote over half of it and still do from time to time. And the story is of a high school football team uh, and the first year that their high school was integrated and how that the football team was able to come together despite racial tension. And while many think that the climax of that movie would be um, at the end where the team makes it to the state finals, I would argue that the climax of the movie uh, happens long before that, when the team is in training camp, they're at this off-site place, um, and the team has been just not getting along well at all and bickering and fighting. And uh, one morning, the coach uh, gets them up at the crack of dawn and takes them on a long run uh, that eventually leads them, unbeknownst to them, to one of the battlefields of Gettysburg, uh, where he proceeds to give a riveting speech about unity. And that night, um, on the field, in practice, his speech pays off. And uh, one of the most important things happens. Gary Bertier and Julius Campbell, the two best athletes on the team, people of different color, they uh, are both on the defensive side of the ball, and they had been bickering and fighting um, the whole camp. But they make a play on the ball together, uh, and something happens in that moment. And, and they eventually begin to put aside their differences and, and and uh, something just clicks, and, and they become best friends. And it's a profound moment in the movie. And uh, everything is sort of downhill from there, the rest of the movie. And this section of Philippians is kind of like Paul's own you know, early morning Gettysburg Battlefield speech on unity to the Philippian church. Uh, we saw a beginning in chapter 1, verse 27, and then it became a lot more apparent in the beginning of chapter 2 that he comes in his letter to the subject of unity. This was one of the purposes he wrote to them. And he's calling them to be of one mind as they minister in their city together and, and to do this side by side in unity. But then as we saw last week, as Dan uh, wonderfully preached for us, Paul kind of elevates his argument by appealing to the example of Christ's humility uh, at the cross as a motivation for unity and, and for self-sacrificing love. But immediately following uh, this description of Christ comes a very key word for our passage this morning. The first word of our passage is, therefore, and it kind of sets the tone for the whole passage. So Paul is going to show that the beautiful theology of the previous passage that we looked at last week is not just for the ivory towers, but it has real-life implications. More specifically, as we'll see here, he, Paul returns to and he finishes uh, the appeal that he had begun earlier calling the divided Philippians to unity. And whenever there's repetition in the Bible, our ears should perk up. That was the ancient calligrapher's way of expressing emphasis and to try to get our attention. And calls to unity bear repeating for us today as well. We can all feel it right now. Things are a little tense and lots of buttons are being pushed. So what an opportunity we have as the church and the family of God to offer hope to our world. So this section is about unity. And Paul's going to show us three things, the possibility of unity, the grind of unity, and the blessing of unity. So first of all, the possibility of unity. We see this in verses 12 to 13. Paul starts his appeal in a rather hopeful tone. 
in verses 12 and 13. There's this encouragement. My beloved, as you have always obeyed. He's reminding them that they are, are already beginning to do this. God is already at work in them. Um, and that God is at work, but it doesn't stop there. There's no graduation date in, in the Christian life uh, of our growth in Christ. We need to keep growing. But then he kind of goes into this exhortation. He's, he begins it, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence. And this is the second time he's used that phrase. In chapter 127, he said the same thing. What does he mean here? I think he's alluding to an unhealthy dependence that the Philippians had upon Paul. It was easier for them to follow Christ when Paul was around. Why is that? We don't fully know. Maybe there was a little people-pleasing going on towards him. But Paul is trying to show them that one of the marks that God is at work in our lives is that it doesn't matter when no one notices. And I think the recent um, stories that have come out about Ravi Zacharias bring a lot more weight to this idea where we see the importance of having consistency between our public and private life and how difficult that can be. That's part of what it looks like to grow in Christ. So Paul continues, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And this is a pretty familiar passage that many of you know well. But notice first, he's not saying to work for your salvation. This is not about earning anything. He's not talking about justification here. Justification is, is already done and it's beautiful, but the cool thing about this verse is that God doesn't just stop um, at justification. He wants the realities of our heavenly justified self to unfold here on earth. And this is called sanctification, the process of becoming more holy. And while in the process of, of justification, we are more passive, receiving it, in sanctification, we are more active. We have a part to play. And so this means something profound. The Christian life requires effort. And this is a good thing. As one person has said, effort is not a four-letter word in the Christian life. But it's not just any kind of effort. Paul isn't finished yet. First of all, it's not an independent effort of doing this alone. Notice this, this command is in the plural. You all work out your salvation. I think implied there is this sense that we would be helping each other grow. This is done corporately. But it also has a very specific style to it. It's not Nike, just do it effort, but it's a childlike effort with fear and trembling. And fear has um, different meanings in the Bible, but here it's not this sense of terror, of being afraid of God, but it's, it's this sense of having awe of God, of doing this in awe and in wonder of God. I guess if there is any element of terror, it's terror at the magnitude of God's grace and his mercy towards us as sinful as we are. It's the kind of terror of God's magnificent grace that compels us to respond to him in love. But it's also a loyal fear. It's an intense longing to follow his ways and to please him. But then there's this dramatic qualifier in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What a glorious promise for us. He's saying we work out what he works in. Notice that God gives us both the will and the strength. If you're going to do anything in life, you need to have both of those things. You need to have the desire to do it and the energy to do it. And it says God gives both of those things. So now we know how Paul can say later in 
Corinthians that I worked harder than any of the apostles, but it was not me. It was God's grace at work in me. A helpful way I've seen to illustrate this dynamic is to think about it this way. Ours is an intense work in the Christian life, but God's is a powerful work. And I don't know how those things fully relate. Uh, It's a mystery. As one author has said, we need to act the miracle. That's what this is about, and this is how this works. But remember, all of this is in the context of a call to unity. I love how Dan, he, he brought up last week, how we're probably all sick and tired of talking about unity. We're probably feeling a little jaded by talks of it, feeling like, you know, how can we possibly achieve this? But Paul is trying to give us hope here that we can talk about this as if it will happen. And it's a good thing he starts that way because things begin to get more real in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. This is the grind of unity. We've seen the possibility, but also the grind of unity in verse 14. Here's where we see that Paul's focus is still on unity in this section because you know, not grumbling and not disputing, those are building blocks of unity. But these things are hard. That's why I use that word grind. So what does he mean by grumbling and disputing? Grumbling, that's, that's complaining that things are not going your way. It's different than groaning, as Dan pointed out last summer when we looked at Romans 8. Groaning is the expression of a heart that complains or laments for things on earth to be as they are in heaven. It's how people suffer or grieve with hope. Grumbling, on the other hand, is the expression of a heart that in the midst of pain longs for things on earth to be as they are in our own minds or in our own kingdom. It's how people suffer without hope. And so the opposite of grumbling would either be groaning or just simply old-fashioned contentment. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he, he says, we need to believe these four things to avoid grumbling. First thing we need to believe to avoid this is that God is incapable of being unkind or unfair. I think that's, you know, reason enough to not grumble. But he goes on, another thing we need to believe is that God is our Father who loves us and is concerned for us. We need to remind ourselves of the greatness of God and the smallness of our own minds and our own wisdom. And we need to remember that God really, 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 really loves sanctification. He loves to make us more like Jesus, and he will do whatever it takes in that process. And so, no grumbling, but Paul's not done. He also mentions disputing. And the word for disputing simply means fighting. He might be foreshadowing here what's going to be coming up in chapter 4, where he gets more specific about some things going on in that church. But for now, just a couple things about this. He's obviously not saying that we can never disagree as believers. You know, conflict is, is just a natural part of life, this side of glory, and it can often be actually a really good thing to work through. But he's speaking of how we engage in conflict. Some categories that have helped me over the years is, the, is to think about the idea of peacemaking. Uh, that's, you know, a biblical category for resolving conflict, but there's opposites of that. There's peace breaking, there's also peace faking, and then peace making. So peace breaking, that's disputing, like Paul is saying. That involves turning a person into an enemy, tearing the person down, assuming the worst about the person. And, and this triggers 
an adversarial cycle where, where it's just a debate and it's about winning and you're always going to be able to find a rebuttal. But its, it's, it's close uh, cousin is peace faking. It turns the person into a stranger. It ignores the problem and it, and it triggers a withdrawn cycle. And it eventually then leads to peace breaking. It eventually boils over. But Paul calls us to peacemaking here. And this turns a person into an ally. It involves honest sharing, active listening and understanding, assumes the best in someone, and it triggers an empathetic cycle. It's a way to wrestle through something in a way that the person knows you are for them. And obviously Paul is speaking against peace breaking and faking here. I don't think that's an accident that these two ideas are combined here because I think they feed off each other in a way that can destroy unity. The more you grumble and complain about someone in their absence, the more your heart disposition is kind of positioned to dispute with them when you are with them. And the more quarreling that is involved in your relationship, the more you know, you're in that adversarial cycle, the more you grumble and complain about them when you go away. I'll bet when this letter was first being read um, to the church at Philippi, I can imagine some people were blushing uh, at this point and maybe kind of sulking in their chairs and putting their heads down. I know that was one of my reactions as I read this part, uh, as I really can relate to, to that struggle and need that reminder. That, that phrase, all things, do this in all things, and that includes, friends, even in a pandemic, we're to not grumble and dispute. So I'm guilty of these things, both my stewing over something I don't like or I disagree with about someone and then avoiding talking about it with them. It drives wedges in my relationships with people. You know, I want to be right and I only listen to the people that make me feel better about myself and that I only agree with. So what does it look like to have the mind of Christ, as Dan talked about last week, in disputing and in grumbling and disputing? I think Let's offer three things. This first one is from a, a pastor, a well-known pastor, and he, he's put it helpfully. He says, focus on ideas, not labels. And sadly, I don't think I really need to explain myself there. I think we all know what I mean by labels. This person is such a this, or that author, that book is, is so this. This pastor, he says, recognize when people change their minds or nuance their views don't define someone by their worst statement and then don't then define every institution they've ever been a part of or any friend they've ever had by that statement. It's a nice way of him canceling cancel culture. So then he goes on, let's show ourselves as Christians to be more logically rigorous and definitionally, definitionally precise than the world. Don't confuse correlation and causation. Don't look for the worst examples on the other side to prove the rightness of your or the righteousness of your side. Don't assume the person is not entirely with you on every point, is therefore an enemy not to be trusted on any point. Don't think that courage means you can't be careful with your words, or that compassion means you can't ask uncomfortable questions. Just a few thoughts from, from a pastor. And it kind of assumes the idea of critical thinking as well. Understanding an opposing subject really well, acknowledging any truth in it, and gently pointing out its flaws. Another uh, idea for um, you know, having the mind of Christ in this is to soundproof our echo chambers. 
It's good to have some confidants who you agree with on things, but it's unhealthy if that's all you have. If you know what an echo chamber is, it's where you're only listening to people that you agree with. Um, If that's all you have, it can really drive grumbling and disputing. We need to put some soundproofing on our echo chambers to check ourselves, to see the other side of things, to see that that people we disagree with are humans as well, and, and this can help keep the main thing the main thing. And then finally, in person is best. Uh, that's Jesus' example in Matthew. So much communication is nonverbal, and when in doubt, resolve things in person if you can. And of course, I do not pretend to say that this is easy. This is so difficult, all of these different things. I mean, how many of us, when we read that line, do all things without grumbling or disputed, just kind of rolled our eyes and said, really, Paul? But notice this is not in a vacuum. This, this command is not in a vacuum. Notice the location of this command. It's given after two very important sections. As I said earlier, the, the first word, therefore, in verse 12 is really important. This is coming on the heels of, of reminding us of the example of Christ and, and, and reminding us that we have that same mind in us towards humility, an example of Christ's humility. And that's, that's such an important part of, of avoiding grumbling and disputing because pride really is, is underneath a lot of that, and we need more humility. But it's also really encouraging and actually quite fascinating that this command immediately follows the promise of verse 13. We can't do this without that promise that God is at work in us to, to will and to work according to his good pleasure. You know, friends, in our, in our journey of growth, we're not blacked out like Texas was this past week. We are connected to a power source. Um, in this pursuit. And so that's the grind of humility. But finally, th- there's, a, there's a blessing of unity. There's the possibility in the grind, but then uh, we see it, it pays off, the blessing of unity, and this is in the verses 16 to 30. You know, there's a compelling video online that you can watch. It's called How Wolves Saved Yellowstone. The video is about how they reintroduced wolves back into Yellowstone and how that transformed its ecosystem. I'd never heard of such a thing, but here's how it works. Before the wolves were exterminated in the early 20th century, the park was flourishing. But then the wolves were taken away, and before they were reintroduced into the park, it, was, it became rough and it was on a decline. Mainly um, the, the deer population really grew, and they started eating vegetation, which brought about barrenness. But the presence of wolves changed the patterns of the deer and allowed vegetation to return. In just six years, the the trees quintupled in size. Then barren valley sides soon became forests of aspen, and this brought more birds to the area. You could literally hear the sound of the changes being made in Yellowstone. And beavers, there were beavers that started increasing in number because they liked to eat all this wood that was growing more. And, and the beavers made beaver dams, which brought more flourishing in the rivers. And the wolves killed coyotes. And because of this, the number of rabbits and mice increased, increased which brought more birds of prey and weasels and foxes and badgers. The wolves began to change even the behavior of the rivers because the, the other animals were not congregating in certain spots of the riverbed as much as they were, which brought more growth, which changed the direction of the rivers. And at the end of this video, the narrator says, the wolves, though small in number, transformed not just the ecosystem of Yellowstone, but even its geography. Now, why am I sharing this? 
It's because this video got me to thinking, and yes, I'm about to compare us to wolves, but stick with me here. There is one reason why these wolves have this dramatic impact on this entire ecosystem. It's because they were true to their design. They were being who they are. They were just being wolves. And because of that, the ecosystem and wildlife began to flourish. The animals, there were more animals finding their homes in Yellowstone because the wolves were true to their design. The entire park experienced a sort of revival. And as the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, he knew that, though small in number, they could shine as lights in the midst of the world, he says in verse 15. But there was one thing this church had to do. They had to be true to their design. In Christ, as Paul has said elsewhere, the church, we are one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female, barbarian or Scythian, or in our words, Republican or Democrat. In Christ, they are one. And in verse 15, they are already children of God. They had already been given the mind of Christ. Paul says when they become who they are, and to us today, when we become who we are as the church, This produces something beautiful, light to the world. And so the blessing of unity is, first of all, just that. It's that it produces light. And I think there's an important point implied here. What is a shining light all about? It's not about us. It's not about, you know, putting the light on us. It's about God. It's about making the invisible God visible to the world. It's about make God, making God beautiful. That's what um, being a light is about. It's something that the Bible says we already are. Our chief end is not our unity or our community. Our chief end is God's glory. And when we humble ourselves under that aim, unity naturally occurs. And God gets even more glory. So when we pursue unity just for unity's sake, it falls flat and it's not true unity. But when we pursue it for God's sake and for his glory, that's when we start getting somewhere. And that's when the light becomes more visible. So that's the first blessing of unity is, is that it produces light and, shine, and, and makes God more visible. But the other blessing is joy. Let me ask you a question. In heaven, do you think you're going to be happy? I assume you guys would say yes. In heaven, do you think you're going to be holy? I assume you'd say yes. And in heaven, do you think we will experience a unity that we've never experienced before? And I think we would all say yes. You see what I just did there? The, the concepts of joy and of unity amongst diversity are not incompatible. True joy is not in tribalism, in echo chambers, of course, or of course in discord, but found in finding common ground in Christ. And you see that joy in this passage. It brings Paul joy. Look at, I mean, earlier passage, verse 2, he says, complete my joy by being of one mind together. And in verse 17, you see it brings Paul joy even in his death that the Philippians would pursue this. And in verse 18, he says it brings them joy as well. And I wish I had time to go deeper into verses 19 to 30 where he kind of talks about Timothy and Epaphroditus. <clears throat> but let me just say a couple things. In many ways, those sections are Paul 
giving examples and giving uh, models of everything he's talked about so far. Timothy and Epaphroditus are great examples of self-sacrificing love. But you also see the immense affection between Timothy and Paul and, and Epaphroditus and Paul. And this is the joy that comes from unity as family. Paul says Timothy was like a brother to him and Epaphroditus, that Timothy was like a son to him and Epaphroditus like a brother. And you see how much joy his relationships with them have brought and how much joy their coming to Philippi would bring. It's brothers and sisters dwelling together in unity. And so that's the blessing of unity. And, and friends, the stakes are before us, but the tools are within us. God in his radical grace and his mysterious mystery, mysterious wisdom has chosen us, jars of clay, to be the church and to make his glories shown to the world. And it's definitely not the most efficient or quick plan, if you ask me, because we we take a long time to accomplish this in the world. God could just snap his fingers and, and, you know, fix all the problems. But in his grace, he has chosen us to join him in his mission to make all things new, standing side by side in unity. And so, friends, let's act this miracle. Let's act this miracle and let's uh, take hold of the resources we've been given uh, to pursue God's glory in the world and to be the lights that we already are. And and what a wonderful promise that was to sing earlier, that who can stop the Lord Almighty in this? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your grace and mercy, and we pray that you would help the the beautiful truths of your word to be buried deep in the soil of our hearts. And would you water and and tend that soil uh, as as we go through this next week, and that uh, that it would grow and bear fruit in our lives and our relationships with one another. Um, and that this would give you much glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.